Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and uh, I'm joined by one of the most requested guests we have. Um, he's been on here many times before, and we're always very glad to have him. It's Alex Stoyle, who is our friend and a sports psychologist. Alex, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Absolute pleasure. And uh, we've got some some questions from the X-Ups lined up. We've got lots to talk about. Uh, just in case people haven't listened to an episode with you on before, would you mind giving a little bit of background as to your um, your profession, I suppose? Yeah, so I'm a sports psychologist in training at the moment. So that means I've done all the kind of academic bits of it. And I'm currently working on a doctorate, uh, which will finish off all of my training. Uh, I also, so that's at the University of Portsmouth. And I look into uh, essentially sort of underperformance and pressure and the relationship between those. Um, so if you want to paraphrase that, it's basically bottling it, um, which yeah, Spurs don't do anymore. It turns out that's that's <laughs> Arsenal's job. Um, so yeah, I look into that. Um, and then I also work with uh, both one-on-one clients um, across loads of different sports, ages, all that kind of uh, thing. And then I also work with a couple of organizations. So I am one of the sports psychology practitioners for England Swimming uh, and for a couple of universities as well. So and then so that's the the psychology side of it. Um, I'm also a Spurs fan and season ticket holder. So, yeah, uh, qualified across the board. Thoroughly invested Lovely stuff. Um, do, do you use the phrase "bottling it" in your in your thesis as shorthand? Uh, I so kind of yes. Like one of the avenues that I'm I'm going down is sort of trying to understand whether the fr- like phrases like choking, mm-hmm. like so choking under pressure, bottling it, like those kinds of phrases, whether they have the same sort of meaning and particularly, I guess, looking at whether the way that certain terminology that's used in the kind of sports psychology research like the more academic realm, whether that's the same as how it's used in, in kind of everyday life. So like if someone on the street goes, oh, they totally choked under pressure. Is that 
how people are kind of using that in in the sort of more academic world and how they're sort of then engineering um experiments and things to to sort of test various yeah various uh variables or whatever so mm. uh so yeah in fact um yeah there's there's a good chance that that bottling it and perhaps even spursiness uh will end up in at least one of the papers that i write as part of the doctorate lovely stuff yeah you you need to get some spurs references in there for sure i'm, I'm yeah. there, there are multiple examples i'm sure that you can draw upon so uh, <laughs> plenty of source material um let's start off with i mean you've, you've mentioned arsenal bottling it but of course spurs did the opposite uh and i tweeted about this actually last night i i, I said that there's we had a steely determination to us throughout the latter part of the season um and i i think that was kind of characterized by Conte's own mannerisms and interviews and um and general calmness can you talk to us a little bit about that and the impact that that might have had yeah and and I mean first things first I, I, it's a bit of a surprise to everyone that I'm going to sort of talk about Conte and calmness as the as an idea but um yeah I mean I I think there was a real just sort of assuredness and and confidence in in the sort of the system and even in the the players that he had right and particularly we went through a bit of a rough patch with Brighton and Brentford and and that was you know a, a lot of people I think justifiably were sort of saying like there's this isn't working you know we've got to switch this up we've got to find different personnel we've got to be a bit more experimental and Conte just didn't blink and you know, I, I think, you know, there is probably a, a reasonable amount of kind of just um, stubbornness at play there. But I think also just that if you are a player like Royale, for example, who had been brought in after Doherty got injured and who was you know really pretty bad in those games and, and, and you know, is I don't think he's a bad player in general. I, I kind of completely agree with with the take that, that the pod kind of generally goes with that like he could be an excellent player in a system more more catered to him but he he was really bad like to, to be really honest and but I suspect that knowing that Conte wasn't going to drop him and wasn't going to sort of tweak the system and was you know had faith in him to keep going out there that that could be really really important right and beyond that i think in terms of the the sort of the broader dynamics of the team and like certainly for a player sorry for a for a manager like conte where the the automations and the patterns are integral right totally crucial to to his his style of management having trying to sort of mess with as few components as possible makes a lot of sense. So there is a sort of, you know, as we learn things, right, you know, learn physical skills, learn playing patterns, all the rest of it, right, there's there's a, a learning curve, right? And and if you've got a team where most players have now actually started to get to grips with that, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, right, so there's a nice little dynamic building between Doherty and Kulishevsky and Hojbjerg and Kulishevsky and Kane and Kulishevsky, then you go, okay, right, well, we've lost Doherty, so we're going to bring in Royale. You've only got kind of like one variable there. There's like one link in the chain that's that's changed. If all of a sudden you go, all right, we're going to switch it up. We're going to play Kulishevsky as, as right wing back and bring in Mora maybe as the, you know, the sort of the, the right side of the attack. Like all of a sudden everything's kind of thrown into into chaos and not just because Lucas is a generally chaotic player but like all of a sudden no one knows where anyone's going to be and what what's really interesting in this kind of I guess touches a bit more more closely on on the sort of specific research that I do is like 
is there is a you know there is a process which has the sort of slightly fancy name of of reinvestment which is the the process or, or the phenomenon in which automatic processes so processes that you have learned kind of by heart you've learned you've practiced them over and over and over again and you know what you're doing even without thinking they start to break down and it's it's basically a result of overthinking um so yeah reinvestment is basically a, a fancy sort of way of saying overthinking things but if you've started to get the rest of the team to a place where they are doing all of these things automatically and then you start to sort of change multiple facets of that, there is a real chance that that people will start to overthink that. And I think that's possibly even a little bit what maybe did happen in a, in those games where we were we were pretty bad as a team, right, was all of a sudden nothing seemed to click and everyone seemed to be second guessing themselves. No one seemed to be quite in the right place. And what may have been happening there was rather than just sort of like okay i know that i run from here to there and then i'm going to kick the ball to that guy over there because he's going to have made this little run right all of a sudden everyone is second guessing themselves which means everyone's a half yard slower where they're meant to be they're playing the ball slightly less fluidly so that's that's one of the key kind of characteristics of of reinvestment is you go from a nice fluid reliable Mm -hmm. automatic execution into a like jittery kind of like uh, tense and awkward execution of it right so all of a sudden you could get players who are doing things that they definitely know how to do and all of a sudden in that moment because they've been overthinking things like they they may no longer be able to execute it with that same sort of automatic yeah uh, automatic kind of flow and and sort of yeah that kind of the classic cliche of the sort of like the really good people make it look easy well all of a sudden they start making the easy things look hard um and so yeah i i i think that could potentially have been a little bit of what was going on in in those games and also possibly at other points when we've had our little kind of lulls and and sort of dips in form is like potentially that was just as as Conte was adding more elements into the game plan you maybe started to get people over analyzing overthinking wait was I meant to be here or there or you know if I play this pass is that guy actually going to make the run that I think he's going to and so you start to get that sort of little it's not quite so much I guess doubt but it's just that over attention I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of explaining what we saw as well um yeah I mean that all that all tallies for me because basically the way Brighton in particular played against us was a way that I don't think any other team had played against us this season and it only takes one or two things to change at the beginning of build-up play for the whole thing to change because it has to you know you're taking a different route out of out of defense or attempting to we, we actually weren't able to in the end and that throws everyone off course and you're right we do did look like we were second guessing ourselves quite often compare that to Norwich the the absolute thrashing and I I don't recall seeing Spurs players playing so much one touch football as we did against Norwich for a long long time you know there were so many first time layoffs and first time passes and that to me is a sign of assuredness um players not having to think before they make the pass they are so adept I mean and Norwich stood off us which obviously helps it completely helps but the understanding of the system uh I mean it was almost like a training game in in that sense so i really i really like that um that explanation and conte's sort of um stability and the way he spoke to the press and to the this the spurs in in-house media team and 
the sort of um he 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 didn't ever give off vibes of being panicked in contrast to Arteta what impact will that have had on on our players yeah i mean i i think i think both in terms of the confidence that that instills like in 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 our players right of of if you've got this manager who's won everything right and who has you know already at that point turned the season around you know even if we hadn't quite snatched forth like then you know but we were still performing far better we'd had some pretty impressive results against city we'd you know like we were climbing up the table like all of a sudden the season was looking far more respectable than i think any of us could have imagined you know towards the end of of nuno's very short reign um but yeah there was a kind of i think when you've you can kind of feel that the team is playing better and you've got the manager sort of just refusing to flinch like that's going to give you a sense of of confidence and i think what's also quite important and it's it's a concept that i think i mention every single time i'm on here right is but it it brings things very much back within control of the players right of like okay we you know we're not going to just we're not going to keep making random changes just because the press are asking us to or you know like you can just sort of say like you know, Conte's there going like, no, no, here's my team. You know, this is how we're going to play. We're going to keep just running the same drills. We're going to keep doing the same things. You guys are going to get the hang of this and we're going to get better and we're going to see the results. And, and he can, so he can, he can point to past performance as well. Right. Because, they, you know, in the in in the games prior to the the two poor ones, the Brighton and the Brentford games, we had successfully played the system and, and looked really good. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, there are, you know, some of these are, are such fine margins, you know, that that had there been, had we played, you know, a slightly better, you know, a, a, in the first 10, 15 minutes of some of those games got maybe a slightly fortunate goal. I think, you know, like it's quite, I think it's quite possible everyone would have relaxed. I agree. wouldn't have had that same overthinking potentially. And we might have gone on to absolutely smash those teams. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not inconceivable that 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 could have happened right um and i think you know having having mentioned arteta there like i think he was a, a real kind of contrast to that so after that north london derby like he yeah and and whenever we speak about managers and whatever you know there, there's obviously the, the caveat that we don't know what they're saying behind closed doors we don't know what they're saying to players but for him to come out afterwards with the sort of bizarre kind of conspiracy theory chat and and he looked so rattled and so shaken by by that result and rather than owning it and and bringing it back to you know again control right bringing it back to okay that wasn't the performance we were looking for you know we obviously weren't expecting to go down to 10 men so that made things worse but you know we will learn from this we're gonna you know and we're gonna put this game behind us we learn the things we can and then we're gonna move on instead it was such a sort of weird way of thinking about it that that is you know, if he's letting on any of that to his players, it's not a super helpful way to think about things because, you you know, blaming it on poor refereeing decisions is is not going to be helpful in the long run because then all you do is start to sort of worry, oh, well, are the whole league out to get me? You know, like, and, but it, and there's nothing you can do about it as the player, right? You can't really change the mind of the referee if they're going to make a decision one way or another. So you might as well be focusing more on your own performance and what you as a team or you and as you as an individual and you as a team can be doing instead, rather than yeah, these kind of other 
factors that are well beyond your own your own control it's really tough that um, managers have to come out after such a kind of emotional 90 minutes or whatever uh, and have to sort of face up to such severe scrutiny but I was surprised by the way Arteta handled himself it Mm. kind of seemed really out of character for him to be honest I've never seen him behave like that before but also he's a he's a relatively young manager he's not long finished his career as a professional footballer he would have had so many hours of psychological tutoring I would imagine from people like yourself Alex and it it was really shocking to me that he didn't think a bit more carefully about the way he was going to come across in that interview because like you say we don't know what's gone on behind closed doors but his players will have seen that they'd have picked up on on what happened in front of the cameras because everyone was picking up on it was it was kind of insane. I've, I've rarely seen a manager lose it like that since the uh, the classic Keegan rant uh, on Sky. Um, and I, I think just quickly, it's, it's, as a sort of a bit of a contrast also, like I before I was a sports psychologist. And I th- again, I think this maybe I've, I've spoken a bit before, but like I think peak Mourinho, sort of Chelsea era Mourinho would say conspiracy and and at Real he would he had all these conspiracy theories that UEFA were siding with Barcelona and all the rest of it um and like he would he would come out with that but he would do that and he would do that maybe after they after his team had lost but he would come out and say it and he wouldn't he wouldn't just come out and look a bit stroppy and say if I speak now I will be banned for six weeks he would come out and he would say this is all clearly rigged. There is a global footballing conspiracy against me and my team, which which would mean that then the back page the next day would be Mourinho blames global conspiracy. And like you wouldn't get the heat on the players in the same way because he would have he would have taken it. Now, I think once Mourinho stopped being Pete Mourinho, he started to throw his own players under the bus publicly rather than finding like a kind of fictional baddie to to aim for and I I just thought it was quite interesting because like I think Arteta kind of I I wondered part of me was like is he trying to do that is he trying to take the heat off his players but he he just clearly looked so shaken and he then kind of didn't really say the controversial he just kept saying like oh if I say this it'll be controversial and it's like well if he'd actually said it (laughs) if he'd taken a fine you know then he probably might have deflected a bit of heat and instead i think he just looked really panicked um mm. and and that i sense or that i believe was probably then sensed by the players right and if you don't if you if you don't then if you're feeling a bit shaken by the result which i'm sure they were you're then looking to your manager to be the sort of calm authoritative figure who can sort of like confidently lead you through your last few games and he's looks like he's about to burst into tears like that's that's not not really what you want in that moment and and that is how Arsenal played against Newcastle in their follow-up game they they were so sort of anxious from the very first minute and St James's Park is not the kind of stadium where you can afford to show any weakness because those fans are on you like a flash and they were and I, I, I so I've said before that I expected Newcastle to give Arsenal a tough game and I actually predicted that they would win that I had no idea that they would dominate the game like they did. I was so shocked to see Newcastle have like, I think at one point they had 68% possession against a possession team. Arsenal recently, at least, have become a possession side once again. It was incredible. And I honestly believe that that is in large part down to down to the psychology of it. I, I really think that, that they, they, they managed it so poorly. I'd love to know what went on behind the scenes, uh, whether Arteta's sort of reflected on that 
and and realise the impact that his behaviour had. I'm, I'm sure that he would have had some feedback about the interview. Uh, I, I guess we'll see whether he learns from it next year and whether he behaves in the same way again. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean it's it it's hard to know, right? And, and look, this is all speculation, but it, it's it's certainly hard to see how that reaction can be helpful, right? Like so, even even if he's saying slightly different things behind the scenes, or is is far more composed behind the scenes, or was far more composed by the time they came in for their next training session, or whatever the yeah that in that moment when you probably those players were looking to him for that kind of just like confidence okay that wasn't the result we were looking for but you know we can still you know we we, it was still well within our own hands to to come away with fourth so you know you just got to focus on that surely um but yeah so it 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 was a yeah it was it was a pretty interesting (laughs) post-match to to watch (laughs) So another interesting aspect of Spurs' end of season run-in, and you've mentioned him already, the the reintroduction of Emerson Royale in place of Matt Doherty, who obviously got injured at a really bad time for him. And Emerson Royale came into the team and really struggled. I think because we'd seen such an improvement in Doherty, it was like, oh, actually, the difference between the two now is significant. Plus, Doherty had created a, a really decent connection with Kulusevski. It looked like they were kind of having a... Um, they, they were working well together and they'd created a partnership on that side. And then that was just lost in an instant. Um, however, Emerson Real, uh, he, he, he kind of threw some positive reinforcement. He played himself back into form. And he partly did that through the use of compilations. And now everyone's just constantly tweeting about the Emerson Real post-match compilations. Yeah. And I mean, I I think it's... I think it's brilliant. Uh, like I, I, I was such a big fan of those when when I'd see them come up. Like, um, we've spoken, we've definitely spoken before about the the sort of low light reel that was kind of evident in the All or Nothing documentary, where where Mourinho put together a compilation of all the goals we conceded, and from a confidence perspective, that that is pretty problematic. And so I, I just thought this was brilliant, and and actually the strength of character to like put it out on social media of sort of like here you go like was this is me what's and all yeah exactly and 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 that was what was most i guess impressive was that it wasn't even necessarily that much of a highlight reel some of it was just like okay he'd like take the ball he you know he would receive a pass (laughs) and then you know in the compilation you'd see him like give it away or whatever and and but he was clearly using it as a way of giving himself that sense of of confidence and 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 running through things that he he thought he had done well and again i think there's probably a bit of a question of like we don't know what what was going on behind the scenes so we don't know like if conte is saying to him like here's what i need you working on right do do you know your top priorities are to do this and do that and maybe he was seeing that evidence in those compilations that that weren't immediately evident to to the you know the people who were just sort of having a bit of fun watching them, right? But for him, you know, it clearly he was uh, he was doing them for a reason, right? And and I can only assume that that was in large part because it it gave him a boost in confidence. And you know, certainly off the back of those compilations, his performance has picked up. You know, we can't for sure say that they definitely were you know in any you know we can't say how much they helped or if they helped but i mean he certainly turned his season around you know having he went from being a real liability in the in the 
those couple of games to winning man of the match according to the Spurs fans only a couple of games later and was you know absolutely outstanding against some very good players along the way so yeah I think um yeah I don't know I, I feel like there's a sort of a little bit of a kind of almost a, a lesson there for you know some up-and-coming footballers you know like yeah why not like go away and put together your own little kind of highlight package you probably don't need to put them on social media but there's there's something also about that 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 I, I think is actually quite quite cool right of, of putting it out there as well he um he i think he I, i'd like to know a bit more about emerson real's character he uh he wears his heart on his sleeve quite a bit i think do you remember he scored i think it was like the deflected cross he scored and then he absolutely sprinted over to one area of the pitch and was like giving out to uh a group of or a section of fans who'd sent who'd given him some abuse in the previous match the spurs fans that is yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, OK, he really took that to heart and he was very happy to kind of prove them wrong. Uh, so he's clearly someone that sort of yeah, properly wears his heart on his sleeve. He's very expressive, very communicative. And like you say, really brave of him to put out a compilation that wasn't exactly like. <laughs> I mean, that's why the fans loved it so much, because it wasn't just brilliance. It was it was like an average, average performance. Yeah. And it became sort of a, a cult hit. But then from that, he's become super popular. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, like what a way to build kind of almost instantly build a kind of cult status. Right. Of Like, you know, uh, there was a, a photo that the Spurs official Twitter account dropped about off the back of the result yesterday of us kind of walking through the sort of like walking out towards the champion uh, Champions League banner or whatever and it's Kane, Sun and Royale and you're like I mean like the that's three amigos a, yeah exactly like clearly our three best players right like you know does does Hugo get in there as our club captain for the last decade no nope. <laughs> so yeah I, I I think he has like firmly cemented himself as a you know and even if he gets sold over the summer which you know there's a really good chance he will like I think there's he will always be remembered fondly and in part because of, of those videos. And, and, but I, I think they are a, a really helpful little snippet, uh, you know, a little bit of kind of anecdotal evidence to show that, you know, yeah, going away and, and finding the positives in amongst what was, you know, those, those, there were a few kind of really pretty poor or, or best average performances in there, but he really went away and found, found the best bits and use that as a platform to to build on and and that's you know really really admirable it's not necessarily easy to do um and yeah i i think then probably you know to to your point about him sort of like you know giving back giving giving it some in front of some of the home fans but you know like i think there's probably also a little bit of kind of just using using some of that sort of adversity to to sort of fuel him right and mm-hmm. and you know that we've spoken a little bit about before as well you know like that can be a bit of a double-edged sword it can it can backfire when you sort of like if you're trying to fuel yourself for sort of positive outcomes using really negative things that can work for a while but is it going to work indefinitely rarely so you know like for him you know using it in the moment using it like to celebrate after he scored using a little bit maybe of the backlash even when he would I don't know, maybe when he was putting out those compilations and then he's scouring through the the results, are, you know, the, the the interactions afterwards and sort of finding the people who've said, nah, mate, you were rubbish. You know, maybe he was using that to sort of also hype himself up. 
but ultimately he 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 found a way to come good and and was really really outstanding as 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 cover for Doherty. Lovely stuff. So not just a, a useful PR exercise, but a self help mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Uh, let's tackle some of the questions from our ex subs. So this one, I feel like we might have tackled this. In, at some level before it's from Yagnesh Vadgama who says what are your recommendations for athletes when they hit that proverbial wall more so on the mental health blocks that athletes sometimes find themselves in and I think we've spoken about hitting the wall before but I think it's a really useful topic to talk about because it's something that that's uh, not just athletes um come up against but that regular people like like me um when I'm trying to run 5k <laughs> there's a wall sometimes yeah absolutely and and I think, you know, that can be, yeah, that that wall can be kind of pretty intimidating and sometimes kind of, you know, depending on, on what context you're talking about, almost sort of unavoidable. Like my, I've never run a marathon and I'll, I'll leave that up to body. But, you know, my understanding is that there basically is a wall every time, kind of almost regardless of how many times you've done it and, and how much you've trained. Like there will just be a point where a little party goes, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, and so I think, you know, to some extent, it, it, it's some of the same things that we've actually already spoken about. Right. So it's sort of having, you know, having a, a sense of confidence and having taken taken the time through the training process to really kind of acknowledge the progress that you made and the successes that that came along the way. Um, so I, I would say that probably one of the phrases that I use the most with my clients, either individually or, or in kind of group work is like, is to celebrate your successes. And by successes, I mean, the day to day bits and pieces, you know, I'm not talking like end of season, you know, kiss the cup kind of moment, like, but like, okay, today, I'm proud of myself for this and that. And just taking that moment to really appreciate that um can be really helpful and and potentially even having sort of physical reminders of that so again one of the tools that i use a lot um is literally having people write down that those successes at the end of the day write them down on a post-it note or something if you want you can throw that post-it away but you know having just taken that moment to write it down and, and pay attention to it ingrains it in your brain a little bit more but if you keep that post-it you keep it in a little jam jar or something then as you go forward through time eventually you've got this really powerful very visual kind of physical reminder that you can hold in your hand and sort of you can shake it around and see the little bits of paper moving around in there and you you know that that is your hard work and so that can be really helpful going into a into an event or something where you know you've done that work you've got that evidence base for like yeah I'm I'm ready. I'm prepared for this. So that can be really helpful. Um, and then obviously just knowing that you've done if you've done that kind of thing before, right? So if it's not your first marathon, right? Knowing that you've done it, you've done it before, right? Okay, yeah, I, I've felt this way before. I've I've had these doubts before, but I can move past them. I know that. Um, but also, you know, sometimes it's a bit more about finding something that's not quite exactly the same. So you know. If I'm working with a, I've worked with clients maybe sometimes where they've been told they have to kind of adapt their game or, you know, whatever. And they've had to change, change how they play because a new manager's come in or something like that. And I'll sort of talk to them. I'll be like, well, OK, well, well, like talk to me about other times you've been adaptable. So not just within your footballing career, but like, OK, right. So like you moved halfway around across the country to join this team. 
all right well that's adaptability like you know oh so you know and you can just start to kind of like take some of those little kind of attributes or, or kind of psychological traits and you can kind of ask them to demonstrate that and keep hold of of those concepts and that can just be a sort of a nice little thing so you know any sense of like oh that time that you had to show that resilience and that determination and that grit to keep going through something that was a bit miserable or a bit difficult like that could be useful for finishing that marathon or, or whatever that situation is so those can be some really some sort of quite helpful uh little kind of tools along the way um there are then also some more i guess kind of using sort of traditional um techniques that come out of the the specific type of of sports psych or uh, psychology practice that i like which is called act which is the acceptance and commitment therapy um and there's some stuff in there about sort of uh one of the techniques is called like name the narrative or name the voice so like if you know that that voice kind of tends to get a little bit louder and starts to get a bit you know those doubts start creeping in and that voice kind of comes in you don't necessarily want to sort of like tell that voice to kind of shut up and you're not trying to necessarily stop it or, or or kind of completely cancel it out but what you might be able to say to it is like i've i've heard this story before like i've heard these doubts before and actually one of the sort of uh kind of takeaway little tasks from this kind of work is that you can actually even you might even write that the the narrative down on a piece of paper that you keep in your wallet or potentially on the notes function on your phone and you literally write down like oh the doubtful voice and like he's going to come to me and he's going to say x y and z and i know he's going to say it at about this point in whatever it is i'm competing at so that when when he does when that voice starts to kind of get a little bit louder you can literally go eh, eh, i've heard this before look i've I've, I've heard it so many times. I know exactly what you're going to say. I've even written it down before you even have a chance to say it. And so it's just a case of sort of like, which sounds a bit mental because you're kind of having this weird sort of <laughs> dialogue in your own head. And it's kind of a little bit sort of angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. But, you know, you can you can essentially say to that voice, like, listen, I, and another part of the sort of acceptance commitment therapy is like that voice isn't bad. It's just not quite helpful in that moment. So it's a bit of a case of sort of saying like, thanks so much. I know you're trying to help, but you're not helpful because I really want to finish this marathon. So thank you. I know what you're going to say. I've taken it on board because I've heard it before. But actually right now, I'm just going to focus on counting my my strides and just sort of keep pushing on or, or I've got I'm just going to get to that tree and then I'm going to keep pushing on. I think that is, I think that's really interesting. There's a lot of preparation involved, isn't there? They, that these things aren't, I mean, in some senses you can do them in the moment, but it would really help to have prepared yourself for that so that when it happens, you're ready for it uh, and, you, and you know what's coming next. So yeah, I mean, when people talk about marathon training, a lot of that training is about, you know, getting the miles in. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure from what you've just said that that mentally preparing yourself is is equally as important as the sort of physical miles as well to prepare your your muscles and your feet. Yeah, I, I think sorry, so. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, I was, I was just no. I, I think you're you're spot on with that. I think you know they they obviously happen at the same time, right? It's like as you're pushing yourself through mm. those training runs and building up that physical stamina. Yeah, you're also starting to work on those psychological tools to that you can call on in those in those moments when it gets a bit painful. <laughs> mm, for sure. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, this one is from a damalist who says... Apologies if I must misunderstand what you do, <laughs> but is there a difference between helping sports people prepare for high performance versus winning? Is a different approach ever dictated by head coach in this way or do different athletes ask for a particular approach or is there no material difference between the two? So um, so win now versus general high performance. Any thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, I would I would kind of urge my clients to sort of more see the the winning almost as a byproduct of the performance. So it's sort of about learning the processes, doing the right things, and then the results come from that so that you kind of you aren't necessarily either defining yourself or a given match or a given season potentially by the results. So that that's helpful for a number of reasons again coming back to control you can control the processes far more than you can control the actual result right and everyone can think of matches where you know i think everyone was predicting that that tim crawl would do this potentially <laughs> on sunday right but you know where you know the team has 80 something percent possession 40 shots on target i mean tim crawl's done it to us before uh, away at newcastle i think several years ago but you know millions of shots on target and the goalkeeper just sort of suddenly is powering them all the way and like you've done all the processes right but the result hasn't gone your way right so you've kind of got two options at that point you do you either sort of go ah well the processes are wrong well no not really or do you kind of prioritize well okay you know so that's sort of looking only at the the result or do you say well that result is just a bit of a fluke it's a, a rarity it's an anomaly but actually we can be really proud of how we played and nine times out of 10 or even 99 times out of 100 if you play that way you win that game so if you you know and and certainly within depends a little bit i guess on the sport to some extent how much direct relationship there is between the performance and the result so my own swimming back my own sporting background was swimming right like they're very much like if you do the processes right it will pretty much you're pretty much certain it's going to give you the time you're aiming for now that may not win if someone else has done their preparation even a slightly bit better and therefore they've gone faster but you kind of have a pretty close relationship there when you're talking about 11 players against 11 players with a ref to assistant refs a var crowd all the rest of you know there's so many different dynamics in that that you as one individual player you've got a relatively small input on how the actual result turns out. And even as 11 players, you've, you've actually got surprisingly little influence on how the result turns out. So um, 
in that sense, I would kind of generally urge people to sort of think about that that process rather than that, you know, so therefore kind of focusing more on that sort of like the high performance element of it rather than thinking purely about the winning. The other thing is that if you start thinking purely about the winning, I mean, you're not going to win every match, right? So if you then lose, how do you deal with that, right? Do you like if, if you have become, you know, someone who defines themselves purely by that, then when those moments don't go your way for whatever reason, whether it's because of a good performance or that's just been unlucky or a bad performance that, that, yeah, kind of warranted losing, like then where do you go from there? And that can start to really shake confidence, shake that self-esteem. And that can start sort of a, a pretty unhelpful spiral in those moments. And then finally, as a, if you're kind of focusing a little bit more on the sort of processes, like I was saying a bit earlier, right, is, is some of those psychological characteristics can be transferable right and so i guess thinking even longer term like maybe through into sort of retirement and whatever if you can look back on yourself and be like listen i know i am hard working and resilient and adaptable then you're probably in a better position when your sport ends your sporting career ends that you can kind of go cool and those are all features i can take out into whatever i do next whether that's being you know if you're a professional footballer maybe you go and be a pundit or maybe you just spend all your time on the golf course or whatever it is but you know you've you can take those with you whereas if you're spending your whole time thinking oh well there was that that one crucial final that i didn't win like that's it that's what's going to define me for the rest of my life well that's pretty miserable because you know as a sports person kind of almost any level you've got a pretty short career span where you can do it to the sort of best of your ability before age is going to start to take its toll and so at that point you're like well all right how do you deal with that now right um so you know and again then you can start to at least you can focus on the processes right even if you're starting if you're doing it more recreationally you can be like oh well i'm still having fun learning the the elements or going through the processes and getting the sense of satisfaction out of that um so yeah uh, lots of reasons why i would kind of try and like trend towards or you know try and get my get my clients to start thinking in that kind of mindset it it's really fascinating that the art of sports psychology in in this respect tallies basically with how i prefer to analyze football matches anyway i mean i the amount of discussions i've had and and to be fair less so nowadays because people have adjusted to things like expected goals expected assistance you know some of the deep dive data metrics but the amount of times I had a conversation on Twitter where someone would say, yeah, but it was 2-1. We lost 2-1. Why would you look at expected goals? We lost 2-1. It's like, actually, no, I'm looking at I'm looking at some of the underlying factors around the performance. I'm looking at the process. I'm looking at what we got right on the pitch. There's a predictor for future performance. You're simply looking at what happened in this match where, as you say, Alex, there are so many variables. We we had a dodgy penalty given against us or we had a player, our key player go off injured after 10 minutes. These things happen in football and they skew results. And I remember um, Brendan Rodgers became a bit of a meme for for bigging up the possession stats for his team. But it's like that was clearly a big part of of the process for him. He part of their their way of winning was to have a lot of possession. So he saw that as a success. And you might say, yes, it's stale possession um, as as an analyst, but that's a that's a viable defensive tactic to to have the ball means the opposition is not having the ball he's seeing that as his players fulfilling one of his strategies to win the game and then something else happened and they, they lost or whatever but 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's I think that's absolutely fascinating. And generally, I mean, and this is as I get older, I really notice that I am so much more willing to take a kind of longer term approach to 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 football. And I think that's why I was so adamant that we finished in the top four this year, because I wasn't being judgmental in the moment. I was able to sort of stand back and say, actually, I can see I can see tactically how well the players are adapted to the system. Each game, there's a, an incremental improvement. Conte's kind of the message is getting through. And I was able to say, OK, well, and we've got 15 games left. That's that's 45 points to play for. And I'm seeing an improvement. So extrapolating that, I can see a considerable um, improvement to come. And and I found that really, um, really helpful for my for my own kind of uh, optimism as a Spurs fan. In contrast to that, it's why when Mourinho was doing well, I was so doubtful and so pessimistic and so down because the the performance steps that I was hoping to see just weren't there. There was no kind of pro. I couldn't see what the process was. I couldn't understand what tactics were aside from, you know, get it to game, he'll release Son. And that was unsustainable. It was clearly unsustainable. It worked brilliantly in some matches, notably against Southampton. And then it just stopped working because the opposition were able to stop it. And and that kind of explains why I felt so pessimistic, even when we were getting the win. I I, I found this um I found this uh, question really interesting in relation to both of those things. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think there's a, a a lot in that 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 makes sense. Like and and I think also just as a yeah I, I think as a player or, or as a manager, like you, you kind of there's so much volatility, so much unpredictability that if you are just sort of living by whether you win or lose like it 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 would just be too tumultuous right like it would just be too too kind of um painful and and wearing you know on the days that it doesn't go to plan um and and yeah i i think in amongst that yeah like i think conte has been yeah really resolute and and has had faith in that that process and has has given it that sense the other thing actually sorry just quickly is like is also if you if you know what your processes are going to be those processes shouldn't really change you know you might you maybe change them tweak them a little bit depending on who your opposition is but the other nice thing about it is that the processes don't care what's on the line Right. So actually, like going into a match against Norwich where, you know, you have to win and ideally you'd like to get Sonny to score a goal or two, like all of a sudden those processes don't really matter. Sorry, don't really care about the fact that there's a Champions League spot on the line. Right. You're just okay. I pass there. I move here. Then I'm going to receive it from that person. And I know that so and so is making the run there. Those are kind of all the same, regardless of whether it's the first match of the season or the last. And so all of a sudden, if that's what you're focusing on, rather than we've got to win this game because there's a Champions League place on the line or we've got to win this game because it's a Champions League final, then all of a sudden, like that can really throw you as well, because there will naturally be pressure and expectation and all the rest of it that that could be unhelpful. Whereas if you're just sort of more focused on, all right, I know what my game is. I know where I'm meant to be. I know what I'm meant to do. I know when I'm meant to look for so-and-so making this run. You know, that that's that's kind of a constant, right? And and again, it's very controllable. Mm. Really, really interesting. 
Um, this is from Adam W, who says, how can you scout a player's propensity to gel with a new teammate and settle in a new culture? Seems like we've got this wrong on a few occasions over the years, e.g. and Dombele and Brian Hill, who, yeah, I mean, Brian Hill seems to have had a homesickness, which uh, which is a, a tricky one, I guess, to, to predict. Um, do you think there's anything that, that Spurs could be doing in terms of their scouting of a player's... Um, personality type i suppose i think this would be really tricky I, I think it's a really interesting question it's a really good one um i think <laughs> i guess put simply I'm, I'm not sure there's a there really is much that could be done i you know i think you could i'm sure that you know well that there are kind of often rumors about sort of managers kind of talking to people and i think potch sort of did this a good amount like of almost sort of like slightly kind of interviewing certain players before signing them to sort of get a sense of whether they would fit. Um, but there are so many variables there again, right? Like, you know, is someone going to, okay, maybe they're going to absolutely love moving to London, but they're going to hate one of the teammates, you know, and like, you know, or vice versa. They love all their teammates, but they just really miss home or they miss one aspect of home, you know, to a huge extent. And and so trying to figure that out would be really hard. Um, You could conceivably try and use some sort of some of the sort of psychometric tests and kind of the, the kind of personality, they're kind of basically personality tests to sort of get a sense of that. I I personally have I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about how useful those are in general. Um, but I think the other thing is that actually, you know, very often you would sort of tend to approach a, a kind of group dynamic, assuming that you'd have like a little bit of a mix. Potentially by the time you're talking about ultra, ultra elite sports people, which you would be with a Premier League football team. Right. Like you are probably going to get a lot of people who are extremely driven you know who are very resilient who have pushed through made it through all of the excruciating rounds of academies have survived those you know have played at the highest levels have transferred bounced around clubs and countries all over europe to get to where they're going to be you're going to get i i suspect you're probably going to get relatively similar output from a lot of those psychometric tests anyway so then where does that leave you, right? You maybe Ndombele gets the same score as Kuliszewski and you go, oh, well, but it worked for Ndombele. Oh, sorry, it worked for, for Deki, but it didn't work for Ndombele. So you kind of, how, how do you sort of differentiate there? And yeah, I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, humans are just so complicated, so complex. And then you add that into, you know, like you're not even talking one-on-one it's i mean it's basically impossible to predict whether one person is going to get on well with another person let alone you throw them into a squad of however many people a manager assistant managers physios support staff all the rest of it so i think it's probably less a case of trying to screen in advance and probably more about what you can do when they do arrive um to help them bed in and i actually thought that was one of the one of the really interesting things about the all or nothing documentary was sort of seeing a bit of that behind the scenes of, of the work that does go into that um, to sort of help those, those players settle in. And, you know, but at the end of the day, that's also not going to be foolproof. And, and again, I think there's also, you know, to what extent was that really the problem with the non What was, was it really the problem with Hill or, you know, or not? And again, that's sort of, 
that's quite speculative. It may have been one issue of a hundred. Maybe it was the most important. Maybe it was the least important. But yeah, so it, it, it's it's a tricky one to do. But I think yeah, the I I would try and focus more on getting them settled in, identifying common features, common values, common goals, mm-hmm. and sort of focusing on that kind of stuff to to build that sort of sense of of team camaraderie and and togetherness and mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Mm, I like that a lot. So it's kind of like accept that there are many variables that you're not going to be able to control. So control the controllables, do the things you can do to to help players settle in um, and, and don't worry in advance um, about all the things that could go wrong, I suppose. Um, I'm, and as you were talking, I was wondering... I was wondering whether we have kind of a mentor system or like a buddy system. I know that in my place of work, when a new starter joins, it's kind of part of their induction. It's built in that we assign them a mentor or a buddy, someone someone to talk to if um, if they're having a tough time. And I'd, I'd love to know if Spurs do that, whether it's, you know, they, they, they do have that player liaison. So I'm sure he, he acts as that. But I mean, he can't do that for every player. He, like he would never have time to spend with every player. So I wonder if they like have senior players within the squad who uh who take on a sort of mentoring role either officially or unofficially i'd imagine that would be a good thing to do especially someone who's who's made that move before and can kind of talk to the experiences of of um, settling into a new environment um yeah really really interesting yeah and i i think that that kind of yeah the buddy system is really helpful and and i think also just sort of more broadly right like there's gonna be other things like just sort of making that player feel wanted feeling you know respected all the rest of it right and so making sure that they're not being kind of isolated and that's also really hard right because like almost by definition a new signing's gonna take a little while before you're gonna start them right like it just that's just really tricky and and also then there's that's a tricky one as well because like what does that do to the confidence of the person who gets dropped right like they've been playing for that manager or whatever they've been trying their hardest and then all of a sudden in comes this new person and they've just immediately been promoted to the the starting 11 that's pretty rough as well so as the manager that's a really delicate balance to try and strike right you want the new player to feel wanted and appreciated you don't want to totally burn bridges with the the player who's going to be on the bench from now on yeah it's it's really hard and yeah it's it's a very very tricky thing Mm. i really really enjoy being a sports psychologist i would not want to be a football manager (laughs) that is a really hard job i'm glad i don't have to i would never have to make any of the sort of decisions Mm. to drop players or or or, you know who do you start who do you drop those are Mm. those are really hard yeah, uh, trying to sort of manage that at a micro level must just be so difficult. And uh, I was just thinking of because um, you mentioned Kulusevski, you know, coming in halfway through his season, and then uh, in comparison to Brian Heal, who who joined at the beginning of the season and had a bit more time to settle, uh, it's a really interesting comparison. It's similar age, um, inexperienced players, but lots and lots of promise. Obviously, Kulusevski's played more matches. Um, is a bit more established but you know coming coming to a, a foreign country at a young age um, big benefit for Kulusevski is that he speaks really good English uh, which I assume would have made it a lot easier for him to communicate with his teammates and perhaps settle in better also was coming into a team that was doing well whereas Hill came into a team that was struggling with a manager Nuno who didn't really sort of have a didn't really have a system to put it brutally uh, and didn't quite know where Brian Hill was going to play as he ended up ended up playing as a as a winger and then also as a number uh, number eight at times 
uh, Kulisevsky's had a very defined role instantly in, in a system that works. Uh, yeah, really, there's an interesting comparison there. Um, and I think you can and, say the same about Ndombele and Bentoncourt. You know, Ndombele came in, didn't play initially, had to really fight to come into the team and then played as a 10, played as an 8. The team was struggling at that point. Bentancourt has come into a, a much more established team that's sort of moving in the right direction uh, alongside Huybier, who is a steady Eddie player, whereas Ndombele would have been coming in alongside, I, I can't would have been Sissoko and Winks at the time, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, so there's there's some interesting comparisons. Yeah, and and I think also just you know in amongst all of that, right? It's like you could easily make a case, kind of whether you came in before a season or midway through a season, of what would be helpful and unhelpful, right? And it would be so different for some people. So like for someone to come in midway through a season, okay, right, you've just moved to a new country. You, but all of a sudden you're kind of in at the deep end. You kind of don't have time to be homesick because you're on a team bus and then you're on a team plane and you've got training and matches and, you know, all the rest of it. Or are you the type of person who actually, so maybe that works for someone, maybe that worked for, for Kulishevsky, but wouldn't have worked. He actually may have, therefore, complete speculation, he may have struggled, actually, if he'd been brought in in July and had a full preseason of kind of with a bit of sort of twiddling his thumbs and missing home or missing, you know, Italy and feeling a bit lonely and a bit directionless because actually it's ages until the season starts. And, oh, just as he's trying to get settled in and maybe getting to grips with it, there's a preseason tour and he's, you know, like it like you, you can kind of see how that might go either way. Right. But then similarly, like someone might really appreciate the preseason because it gives them a chance to settle in they feel prepared they feel embedded with the team they you know if they're someone who's you know if they're deriving a lot of confidence from the the processes right maybe they feel like they really need that and therefore a, a, a january switch would be really tricky for them to get their head around mm -hmm. so you know you can really see how you know it, it could be really hard and i guess coming back to the the kind of initial question of like how can you figure out if a player is going to gel or not it's like those in and of themselves are just sort of tricky questions right like and i don't know quite how you would you would get to grips with that right would you talk to someone in january and go like are you the type of player who's going to thrive from being thrown in at the deep end if we start you on saturday right like what player is going to say no right like they're gonna they're gonna feel pretty compelled to say yeah yeah yeah, yeah boss i can uh, i'm good to go right and they probably would want to right but are they actually going to thrive or not so yeah it's 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 hard right like and and people will will exist on a spectrum of of what they would prefer from that situation mm, absolutely i mean i think um i think delhi's an interesting case study here as well with his 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 switch to everton because you would imagine that his agent would have been saying to to Everton and Frank Lampard, you know, he's in a rotten place at Spurs. He's not getting in the team. Uh, he, he hasn't had a consistent run for all this time. You know, this move will come just at the right time. It will give him such a boost and, and he'll hit the ground running and all these things. But actually, when he arrived, not only was he in a bad place and so you know, it was a short-term uplift of, yes, I'm happy to be out of that situation. I've got something new to look forward to. But physically, his condition's not good. So he's not ready to play immediately, which instantly kind of puts him back into the, oh, God, I'm not playing. And now I'm not in the team. And now and, and it's a reminder of all the bad stuff that's happened over the past few weeks. And he's had to kind of fight to get back in the team. 
yeah there's so many variables it's so difficult to to plan for any of this isn't it yeah and particularly you know generally autonomy and a sense of sort of being able to control your own destiny is is really helpful right and football's a really really weird world there you know like there aren't there really aren't that many professional sports where you can just be like up and traded at the drop of a hat in the same way you know like that there's a handful of sort of high-end professional sports globally where that happens right but like for the most part it's not really the case right like most people you join you know your local sports team and you play for them until you choose to move house or you know to move to a different part of the country or something right but generally that doesn't happen so the idea that like there you are you've been playing for this team for however long and then all of a sudden like you're no longer in favor and you're being you know carted off to kind of whoever will take you right and you may not even have you know depending on who you are but like the number of players who can who can really control their own destiny there i mean we've just seen with mbappe right he really had a choice about whether he stayed at psg or went to real like great he's got that autonomy but very clearly like that's not the case if you're someone who's a bit out of favor you'll you'll go wherever someone will take you or whoever will offer you the most amount of money so or sorry offer the club the most amount of money for you um so yeah it's it's really hard and how you kind of deal with that when you sort of you've come from a sense you've sensed feeling a bit unwanted and now you're sort of turning up somewhere where you maybe didn't want to be um it's quite hard to get over that Mm. you can imagine this has been uh, a very interesting and very wide-ranging uh, chat, as ever, Alex. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure the ex-subs will be delighted that you've answered their questions. That uh, you're you're the most requested repeat guests, mm-hmm. repeat guest on the the Discord. People love to hear your thoughts and things. So if if anyone has any follow-up questions for Alex, we'll definitely get back on in the future. So so do um do make sure you send them in. Um, how do people find out about you and your work? If someone wanted to book you to work with them or their sports team, how would they go about doing that? So to to book me, the best way is to go to the, the company that I work for, which is called Optimized Potential. So the website is optimizedpotentialsport.com. And you can there's a little contact form there. So you could just fill that in saying what you want. And if you want, you can specifically request me. But everyone I work with is also brilliant. Um, and then you can also, yeah, you can follow me on, on Twitter. I'm at Alex Doyle. And I think I'm on Instagram as at um, Alex Doyle's sports psych with some underscores somewhere in there but my my, my last name is very uh, is very rare so if you kind of just look for Stoyle S-T-O-Y-E-L I'm probably going to pop up pretty soon nice that's the benefit of having an unusual surname I guess it is cool thank you so much um, pleasure to catch up with you I'll let you go now and, and do bath time with your little girl <laughs> thank you very much yeah and um pleasure as always to chat to you and yeah what a, what a great season in the end that was that was a cracker you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to nathan a clark for production thanks to bardi for being italian thanks to adam gardner for the artwork thanks to david lindmer for our intro music you can find him on twitter at davy shambles and his soundcloud d lindmer do check him out great follow us on twitter and facebook at the extra inch Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.